Well, hello, it's Clive DeCarl, and I'm joined by John Hoyt, who uh, was an airline pilot, and I'm sure still could, uh, who had um, uh, an aerotoxic incident, I think is what you might call it, and uh, probably all of us flying have noticed how appalling the air quality is in cabins sometimes, and it varies a lot. Uh, so, John, so tell us what happened to you. Okay, uh, so... I started flying jets in 1989, which is quite a few years ago, and you, you described it as an air quality incident, but it, it actually lasted for 15 years, all the time I was flying jets from 1989 to 2005. So um, I'd, I'd been obviously flying light aircraft below 10,000 feet before 1989, and all was well with my health. But as soon as you get into a jet aircraft, the air's coming from the, um, well, the engines, we'll get onto that later maybe, but effectively you're going above 10,000 feet, up to 30,000 feet, and, and the air comes from the engines, and, and all was quite well. I remember for the first part of 1989, it was in the spring of 1990, I was in Germany, and suddenly, <laughs> bang, my health went. You know, walking down a supermarket, suddenly you got all these weird, um, symptoms and you kind of think what's going on so that's kind of when it started and that's well about 30 years ago now really looking back on it and you, you kind of at the time you think oh it's the beer I drank last night or some other reason you're always looking for a reason for your ill health aren't you so I, I kind of dismissed it and thought oh well I'm not I'm night flying I'm going to work at um what eight o'clock at night finishing at six in the morning you know put it down to other reasons that's what you're constantly doing you're looking so, um, yeah, so it wasn't so much an incident, but something's happened 30 years ago, and then it sort of, it pursues you through life, you know, and I've still got it, really. And guess what? Lots of other people have got it. I'm not the only one. And um, and it's sort of, looking back, you can sort of make sense of it in retrospect. You can think, well, you know, I kept flying, night flying for nine years, you know, doing crazy night flying hours, going all around Europe, getting sicker and sicker. And at the end, I could barely speak. I couldn't really, you know, find my words as I can now. I, I'm quite fluent now. <laughs> but actually, in 1998, when I stopped night flying and went day flying, still on the same aircraft, I could barely speak and lost my memory. Although, of course, flying is quite easy to do in a way because you've got autopilots, first officers, and so on. So you can blag your way through, really. So, you know, I mastered, I suppose, for many years. And then I went day flying and and just got sicker and sicker and never never really understood what it was and then you, you kind of work it out one day and and um and that happened in 2006 because you actually get so sick that you can't actually fly you don't trust yourself you become dangerous um so you know and that's when my journey started does that give you a bit of background as to what happened and when <laughs> well yes indeed i mean uh, you would have thought, with all the simulator work that pilots need to do, that the simulator would have uh, come up with some emergency and uh, noticed your poor thinking. Well, you know, you, you may well say that. A simulator? How do you mean simulator? The, the... Well, I, I, I thought that pilots every few months or something had to get in, in a simulator and see crashes and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we do that every six months. And I have to tell you, the last simulator detail I did in 2005, I think it was, I could barely speak. I could barely think. I was a complete mess, you know. And a lot of pilots describe it as being inebriated. It's like you've had several pints of beer, and, and that's no condition to fly an airplane. 
basically. Mm-hmm. And that's how it was, you know. And, and I could I could barely do the last simulator session. And then you kind of break down because you think oh, there's something terribly wrong and and you can't continue. And that happened in 2005, you know, when I, when I actually stopped flying. So, but this is the biggest problem in the aviation. Well, one of the biggest problems in the aviation industry. So nobody talks about it, knows about it. And it's still going on you know it's been going on for decades and it'll keep going on until they solve it really so so yeah um that's that's how it is really and then of course i found out in 2006 and then you sort of make on a discovery you know and that's kind of how what happened to me and, and many others really and how many people do you think are the canaries in the coal mine and uh go off off the cliff so to speak and how many pilots in percentage terms are now actually unfit to fly? Uh, Good question. Um, Well, of course, what affects pilots, affects cabin crew, affects passengers? I mean, why wouldn't it? You know, anybody in that environment is going to be affected. And the Dutch did some research in 2016. I can send you the published paper. And they said, well, look, people with these sorts of symptoms, which is similar to jet lag, you know, there's a million people in Europe with aerotoxic syndrome. That's how bad it is. They, these are frequent flyers. People are flying frequently, you know, maybe as a job or whatever. They're constantly in the air like air crew. So huge numbers of people. And, you know, and then it doesn't affect everybody in the same way. So some people aren't affected, whereas other people are badly. But it's like any other medical thing, really. So, um, and, the, you know, the, the scientists kind of understood that now you know who gets whacked and who doesn't so yeah huge numbers of people maybe 20 percent of the workforce are affected you know and, and they've got all these terrible symptoms and they will never know why you know um because it's it's pretty inconvenient cause of public ill health isn't it really to be caused by a public transport jet i mean it goes against you know everybody's perception of flying where it's super safe and there's no problems and yet this thing is the you know the the uh, the Achilles heel of the air- airline industry, really, uh, aerotoxic syndrome. So are you saying that most of the uh, airline flight crews are unaware that they're being poisoned? Yeah, the airlines don't want them to know. They don't tell them. The government don't tell them. You know, because if they did, there'd be you know, chaos, really, in the airline industry because it's a well-known thing. But, you know, they get... It's a taboo subject in the in the airline industry. They can't talk about it. They can't, um, you know. Uh, it's um, yeah. It's it's a bit of a. I don't know if you you understand that. It's it, it's well known, but it's got to the point where you can't even talk about it, and yet they still keep claiming there's no evidence. You think, whoa, don't say that. <laughs> there's all these published papers and, and crew reports, and goodness knows what. So you know that that's just doesn't work does it and and you know it'll it'll be found out one day but it's just too big i think it's become a sort of existential problem within the airline industry such that people just shrug their shoulders and say oh well, it's the cost of cheap flying really you know that you you know people get sick and um, and that's how it is so it always surprises me how people don't rebel how they don't stand up and say this is unacceptable so it's amazing to me that so few air crew seem seem to be aware that it is even a problem. You would have thought it would have got yeah. around. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I just it's like a bizarre situation. <laughs> the one I'm in now, you know, sort of knowing what I know and 
and how it affects people and, and still the denials that it even exists. And you kind of think, well, you know, you can understand it in a way. They would say that, wouldn't they? Because if they ever admitted it, I mean, it'd just be bad news for the airline industry, you know, when the passenger is affected particularly. I mean, we, we know that the crews are, but, you know, it's the, the passengers which they're terrified of finding out about this. And there was one um, particular flight in 2007 where, um, you know, people were flying across the Atlantic, passengers, and they, they felt sick on the flight. And when they got to America, they were incredibly ill for the week. And then by, by chance, um, Samantha Sabatino is the name of the passenger. She actually met up with other um, passengers who were flying back to the UK. And she kind of went round to them and said, were you sick on that holiday? You know, did you feel ill? Oh, yeah, we felt ill. Oh, OK, well, so did we. And, and you know, that this was a core group of 40 unrelated passengers who all got sick on one flight, you know, um, from the air quality. And, and this is, you know, I can send you the link for that. And it was a BBC Panorama made a programme about it. And, and they went to law. But of course, if it's ever sort of accepted, it would just be ruinous for the airline industry. So they have to sort of kind of quietly <laughs> dispose of these inconvenient legal cases, you know, and make sure they don't win. Because if they did, you know, there'd be serious trouble. Uh, and just at the moment, there are 200 cases, over 200 cases in the public courts. You know, these are aircrew of Unite the Union. And again, I can send you evidence of that. So that's just a snapshot of of what's really going on, you know, all these sick people. And um, and it's not good, is it, really, that you're, you're getting sick just by getting an aircraft, really, and, and you know, innocently flying on one trip. Or, or obviously, the more you fly, the worse it is, you know. Um, but that's that's about it, really. So w w would it be true that when the jet engines are new and the seals are all as good as they can be, that there's not much problem, but then as the engine gets older and the seals wear that now the oils or hydraulics are being pumped into the cabin. You ask some cracking good questions. <laughs> you put your finger on it. That's what yeah. happened. Yeah. We, we know that in 1978, all the seals on the engines would change regularly every 5,000 hours. But then, of course, that's quite expensive. So what they then did was, well, let's let the seals last for, you know, maybe... 20, 30, 40,000 hours, you know, so the same engines on the same wing. And it's got a fundamental design flaw. The oil and the air can, can actually mix and get into the aircraft. And obviously with a leaky seal over many years, um, that, that's what's going to happen more and more. So exactly right. So that, you know, and the seals aren't seals. They just let carbon monoxide through and, and other stuff into the cabin, really. So um, that's exactly what's happening. It's all to make flying cheap. That's what it's all about, money, you know, how to make things as cheap as possible and save save costs, you know, and, and that's a good example, the, uh, you know, the, the seals within the engine. And um, what, so let's say they went back to changing the seals every 5,000 hours, and could they then add a bit of filtration to to get some of some of the worst stuff out further yeah absolutely and that's what we've been you know asking for for many years now filtration because it's kind of obvious if you're sending contaminated air into the aircraft and the engines it's, it's an opportunity to clean it with a filter but i think the problem is carbon monoxide that's the that's the bad one in the contaminants and, and you can't really filter carbon monoxide it's a tiny little atom and it'll just go straight through and I think that's the reality of it. They, they, they've tried filters, but they don't work, you know. Um, and that, that's the, the harsh reality that they've 
they've tried it, and they, they, and it would also be an admission of liability if they were to then put filters into aircraft. You think, well, why are you filtering it? Oh, just to get the stuff out. Well, what stuff? You know. <laughs> oh well, there's, there's some unpleasant stuff in the air. Um, yeah, and and there are two elements to this really. The, there's some um, in the jet engine oil they proudly put on the tin contains organophosphates. Well, I don't know anybody knows that word. I mean, it's a it's a nerve agent. So if you put in nerve agents into the oil, which is then getting into the air, you're being exposed to organophosphates, which are you know war 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 standard you know warfare chemicals really so that's not good and, and that's one one aspect of it organophosphates in the jet engine oil but there's also carbon monoxide and, and many many other horrible nasty chemicals which get into the cabin to affect people yeah and, and there are no filters there but the bleed air is raw it's it's called bleed air because it's bled off the jet engine piped off straight into the cabin unfiltered unmonitored you couldn't make it off if you tried. It's like the perfect crime, you know. It's just coming straight in and uh, affecting everybody on board. You know, so uh, and you know that that's the real um, what's it call it um, unbelievable fact that you probably caught a carbon monoxide detector in your home. Everybody's got them on their boat in the camper van or wherever. Carbon monoxide is a known deadly gas, but I can assure you that in jet aircraft there are no carbon monoxide sensors. You know, so the crew and the airline can say, well, we don't know anything about anything because there's no sensors. I mean, it's, you couldn't make it off if you tried, could you? They just deliberately don't sense it because they don't want you to You can bring your, bring your own or bring several and hand them out. Absolutely. Dead right. <laughs> and that's the future, I hate to say it, for the poor airline industry because they're faced with people being aware, of, you know, that you can monitor air for carbon monoxide and they'll take their own units on and say, look, I've got... 20 parts per million this isn't right you know get me off well you can't get somebody off quickly at an aircraft at 30,000 feet you know it doesn't work that way so yeah this is the tip of the iceberg the fact that the um sensor systems are coming through now and, th and they can um, obviously tell people what they're breathing you know and as you well know um, carbon monoxide is odorless tasteless invisible you know that's the that's the one that gets them really well it would be interesting to um take a lot of seats on on an aircraft and film it with a lot of uh sectors that could be quite amusing absolutely tell me about it and then when social media you know joins up all the all the results i mean you know the airlines in for a bit of a kicking really because they're gonna actually you know be made aware of what, what's going on really in the in the cabin you know and it's all perfectly um you know, invisible. I mean, you're sitting there and you, you kind of trust the airline to provide you a clean air, but I don't think they really want you to know that it comes off the engine. I mean, if you if you knew it came off the engine, you say, well, and I remember in 1989 thinking, well, that just doesn't sound right when they told me I, <laughs> as a potential new pilot, jet pilot, I thought, this can't be right. You know, why is it coming from the engine? That doesn't sound right. So I want to ask you a couple of other flying questions. Uh, people who've have had the needle craft dropping dropping dead while in charge of a plane. What, what have you heard along those lines? Um, well, I haven't been jabbed, so yeah, I, I, I've heard that it's, uh, it's quite a problem for the airlines, you know, and, and some airlines are, are wanting people who haven't been jabbed. You know, they, they say, "Sorry, we want people who are unjabbed." So it's a 
it's it's just a bizarre thing, you know, this whole pandemic. It's it's a man-made thing which has caused chaos in the world. And yet this aerotoxic thing's been going for 70 years and it's always been there, you know, and, and nobody knows about it, takes it seriously. So it's a bit of a contrast, isn't it? The two different things. And yeah, they're they're both equally deadly. But our one you know, that has caused huge problems. I, I've got so many friends who've been affected by this um, thing, and, uh, and most of them haven't been jabbed because they think, well, if the government lie about aerotoxic, then they're perfectly capable of lying about anything else. So, yeah. Um, okay. And um, contrails versus chemtrails, is that so obvious that it doesn't mean? Well, again, you know, I think this is a red herring by the by certain parties, you know, to sort of say, let's talk about other things. So no, no, no right airline pilot would agree that chemtrails exist. I mean, sorry, it's it's, it's just a bit of a red herring, really. So the less we say about that, the better, maybe. <laughs> the um, the only comment I'd make is is children's drawings, where in you know around 1970-1980 there were fluffy clouds and blue skies, and and that now there there are yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I was young, I, d I don't rem I remember contrails, but I don't remember chemtrails. But how do you tell the difference? Honestly, I mean, people say, "Oh, well, well, they're whiter and different," and, and most pilots just won't even talk about it. Honestly, it's just sorry. It's a bit of a red right, herring. I'll, I'll leave that one alone. <laughs> um, let's go from one controversy to another. Uh, when you're flying, do you ever take account of the curvature of the Earth and the supposed speed that we're spinning when you're flying one way or flying the other way? Do, no, do not you really. navigate as as if the it was a flat plane. Yeah, I think I know where you're coming with this. <laughs> Again, I, I don't want to get into flat Earth or anything. It's kind no, of no, I'm not suggesting you do, but when you navigate, um, do you navigate as if it were flat? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. In a word. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I thought. So. Well, look, it, I think it's incredibly important what what you're saying uh, about about the air pollution. And is there some simple answer that somehow the air crew could be motivated to learn this and demand some sort of action? Is there an answer technically if they weren't going to heat the air directly from the engine? Is there another way to do it? You know? Well, there is, and interestingly, when when air, jet aircraft first started flying in the 1950s, they knew about this problem, about carbon monoxide, and they thought, well, we've got to keep it out of the cabin somehow. So in the 50s, they had mechanical air pumps, which were banging away, compressing the air and piping it into the aircraft. And that was okay. And that was a good idea. So that's called ram air or, or you know, outside air, clean air, if you like, you know, so the Boeing 707, for example, DC-8, those aircraft, you know, I was born in 55, so that was just getting going in 57. But those aircraft were relatively um, uh, safe, shall we say. But, of course, the mechanical pumps broke down. They, they were not very good and, you know, um, caused problems for aircraft scheduling and so on. So so the, the accountants actually looked for ways to find, you know, cheaper ways of supplying air to the aircraft. And they came up with this thing called bleed air. You know, which was on the Caravelle of the 1950s. And then the first Boeing was the Boeing 727, which went from, you know, ram air to bleed air. And that, that was when the problem started in the Boeing 727, 737, 477, 567, 777. All of those Boeings had bleed air. And um, 
And then they thought, oh gosh, we've got a problem here because <laughs> bone aren't stupid. I mean, they kind of realized they, you know, every now and again, they had a, what's called a fume event where the oil and the air mix and causes the cabin to be sort of fogged out with, with fumes, which are, can't be safe. I mean, for heaven's sake, that's without the carbon monoxide, which is invisible. So, so yeah, they, um, uh, they realized they've got a problem. And this is, goes back probably, well, I mean, Neurotoxic was first published in 1999. So that was a result of all the research they did in the 1990s. So when I was sick as anything in the 90s, you know, flying around Europe in my 146, and I didn't know why, they were busy, you know, interviewing people and finding out what was going on. And, and that was great, you know, but it shows an awareness. They knew about this way back in the 90s, you know. And then they said, well, the next aircraft we make won't have bleed air. It'll go back to the way they did it in the Boeing 707, which is to use outside compressed air. But by now, of course, they had um, electric air pumps instead of mechanical air pumps, which were not very reliable. But electric air pumps, they're, they're fine. They bang away all day night. They're just electric. So that's that's the next aircraft that Boeing produced, and it's called the Boeing 787 Dreamliner. And that's a completely different aircraft to every other aircraft built today, you know, because if you look at the wing routes, there's a couple of air holes like your nostrils, and that's where the air goes in, okay? And it doesn't get contaminated by anything. It just goes straight into the air, electric air pumps and then it's pumped around the cabin. And good good old Boeing, you know, they, they came up with the answer. So everybody knows that the Boeing 787 is a safer aircraft. It can't cause the problem. And this started flying in, well, the first flight is 2009, so it's over, well over 10 years ago. So they came up with a problem, but of course they're left with all these other Boeings, like 727, 3747, which are still flying around, and, and they can't fix those. It's a unfixable problem, <laughs> design flaws. So they've got a huge problem on their hands. And it's, um, yeah, they, that's, that's what's going on. Um, and all this is written down. What I'm telling you is it's not me. It's it's result of lots of research by lots of other clever scientists and people cleverer than me who've been onto this for many years. So, you know, I'd welcome anybody to, to look into it and, and research it. But I assure you that's that's the case. And of course, the other thing they did with the Boeing 787 is they made it out of plastic. So it's um, instead of a metal frame, which all the other aircraft were, the, the plastic frame was much stronger. So they could um, reduce the cabin altitude down from 8,000 feet. So when you're normally flying around on a jet, it, it's like being at the top of an 8,000 foot mountain, which is, you know, let's face it. I mean, it's, I don't know if you've been to Kenya or any of these countries, it's quite exhausting being 8,000 feet, you know, because it's, it's hard work. The body doesn't work very well at 8,000 feet. So they, they reduce the, you know, the pressure down in the Boeing 787 to 5,000 feet. So suddenly, you know, it's got to be good, hasn't it? You're flying around with clean air and 5,000 feet, and it's it's a different experience, and that's why the Boeing seven eight seven you know ticks all the boxes. And and what we're what we'd really like is for politicians and governments to be saying, look, in the future, every aircraft has to be built like the Boeing seven eight seven, you know, with electric air pumps and, and outside air, which is clean because bleed air is a sort of fundamental design flaw. Does that all make sense? It makes perfect sense, and presumably over all this length of time. People have worked out what agents are possible to detoxify the poisons. Have you got a list of, you know, be it glutathione, vitamin C, whatever it might, charcoal, all the things that will do the detoxification? 
Well, good question. I, I was terribly fortunate in 2006 because I, I was grounded like a zombie. I couldn't speak or think. I was like a, honestly, <laughs> I've got film of me from 2001 and I can barely speak. And the guy's saying, why can't you speak? And I said, well, I don't know, there's something wrong. You know? So yeah, I've got lots of evidence. But um, so I was very lucky in 2006. I was sent to a doctor who was aware of, you know, the poisoning and knew all about it. And this is going back 15 years. I don't know if I should say her name now, but anyway, she's a well-known doctor. And she said, look, John, all you have to do is stop flying. Because that's kind of making you poisoned, you know, and you think, okay, well, that's that's pretty sensible. I can understand that. I'd stop flying anyway by then, 2006. So, um, and then she said, look, just eat well, sleep well, don't do very much, you know, just um, enjoy life. And no pharmaceutical chemicals, no antidepressants, anything like that. Just, you know, wait, and within two years, you, your whole body will sort of detoxify. And I, I just took her advice on, and that's exactly what I did. And and roughly two years later, I started to feel half human again. But honestly, it was um, it was just doing less rather than more, you know, just keep away from all the drugs, you know, just keep it simple and, and do obvious things. And that's what saves your life, really. So that's my recommendation for anybody to, to just do less than more, and, and then you'll get better. Super interesting. I hope it doesn't put people off flying too much. Uh, but cl clearly, 787s are the way forward. Absolutely, Clive, yeah. And by the way, they'll know why they're ill. If, if they're on, you know, flights where they kind of get jet-lag type symptoms, they think, well, actually, this this is something else. It's another factor, which they don't want to don't want you to know about, do they? <laughs> so, yeah. Are there many 787s in, in the air? Can you go to most um, one? Well, I, th I think there's about a thousand flying around at the moment. Um, you know, because Boeing are onto something and everybody wants a 787 because secretly they all admit that this, you know, it gets around the problem, but they can never admit it. You know, it's like a weird sort of, oh, gee, the games they play. You know. um, so, yeah. Um, and then there's about, I don't know, maybe 20,000 bleed air aircraft flying around. Well, these are poisoning people all the time, you know. So again, you can't stop it. You can just say, "Well, this is this is going on," you know, because it's too big, really. So, and they've got to haven't they? Really, if you think about it, you know, because they can't do anything overnight to stop it. Really, it's just a inherent yes. problem. It's like doctors admitting that the drugs don't work; they just can't do it. Yeah, absolutely. And and what do you do with yourself now, John? Well, actually, um, I work with others still, because I, I don't know about you, I, I know your history, when you get ill, you want to kind of, you know what made you ill, and you kind of want to get to the bottom of it. And I feel passionate about this thing, because it affects so many people. And uh, so I work with other people around the world. And, um, uh, you yeah, know, I've, I've become a bit of a reluctant expert in it over the last 15 years, I suppose, I lose track of the years. And it's it's all a bit strange really because it's all written down it's all published science what we're dealing with so it's not like we're making it up as we go along it's it's all fully published and and we've kind of focused on carbon monoxide in the last few years because that's kind of been the elephant in the room we know i don't know if you're aware of carbon monoxide but it's a, it's sure. a deadly, deadly substance you know and no, i know a couple of people who've died do you mm. yeah and it's not good for you if you, if you get and, and looking back i think that's what we all had we had sort of repeated you know exposures carbon monoxide really in a confined space so so yeah basically to answer your question i, I work with lots of other people and we, we ain't going to give up you know we're gonna but it's kind of a weird job isn't it sort of doing this i never thought i'd end up doing this you know but um 
anyway, so that's what I do. And every Friday we have a Zoom chat with Canadians and Americans. And yeah, but it's just trying to get listened to by the authorities, you know, the people who are sort of finally accountable and responsible for public health, public health you know, that they sort of um, understand what's really causing it and, and take appropriate measures because at the moment they're not. So, so that's what I do. And it's, um, yeah, but I, I was going to wonder if you knew of any investigative journalists or people like that who can maybe take an interest in this thing because the great thing about it is it's all written down and published and the media they're not allowed to mention on ban from the bbc you know you can't have this sort of chat on the bbc can you no no quite um <laughs> uh, Son sonia poulton do you know sonia no i don't um she does a live broadcast three times a week on a very tiny uh youtube alike called brand new tube brandnewtube.com right, right. and Sonia would love to speak with you I would have thought okay. um and uh, she has a, she does this breakfast show and uh, you know, she, she gets she gets a, a number of viewers I will once I've put this video together um I will uh, send it to her okay I'll send you a copy um I, I could splice this in but how do people get in touch with you John if they want to well, I've got the website, um, erotoxic.org, and I started the Erotoxic Association in 2007. And, but I have to say, it's, it's brought me to the brink of bankruptcy. You know, I mean, that nobody welcomes this sort of <laughs> talk, you know, so all they try and do is burn you out financially, and that's what they've managed to do with me. I've, I've got absolutely nothing left now. So it's it's been quite a journey, really, but like like many other people, that they, that's what they do to you. So, but it's slightly ironic because we know all the solutions, you know, we know how to make it better. But of course, you know, whilst there's still not much awareness of it, you know, what, what use of the solutions? So, so. Well, what about the private jets? Uh, do, do they do they pump the air? I mean, do, do they know better? No, they don't. No, and that's the irony, and that's the that's the wonderful bizarre aspect to this all these wealthy people are flying around getting sick you know and they don't know why and, and yet all the time it's the air they're breathing it's, it's just wonderful isn't it that it's sort of a, a, a discreet sort of cause of ill health really and uh, and nobody will ever know you know so you've got terribly wealthy people who are sick with jet lag and aerotoxic syndrome and, and they don't know it and their doctors don't know it it's kind of weird really it's it's a bit of a um what's the word oh, not very good in words but enigma you know it's yeah well it's super interesting it it, it it might be interesting at some point uh perhaps a, a, another time to talk through what the detoxification solutions might be because i'd like to know what you've discovered and i you know i've been studying detoxification for a long time as well okay uh, do you know sarah myhill at all yeah i know sarah yeah yeah Okay, she's a great friend of mine. She saved my life in 2006. I don't know if I meant to mention her name, but, you know, I mean... I've, well, I'm, I'm sure she would have loved you to have mentioned her name, probably. I mean... Oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah. But, um, uh, so I, I found it a bit bizarre in 2006. I drove for two hours to see her in Wales, and she sat me down and said, look, this is what you got to do. And that took, like, 25 seconds. And I said, well, but there must be more to it, Sarah. No, no, that's it. Bugger off, you know. <laughs> it's hilarious. And, and this week, she's going to speak to this group I've got, this American-Canadian group of UK pilots and scientists and doctors and so on, 
and she's going to talk about uh, mitochondria and, and maybe you know all about that i don't know but uh, yeah you, you know i'm i'm a pilot i i try and keep clear of all the doctor stuff you know <laughs> i stick but, to uh, you, you do dead right to keep clear of the doctor stuff but mitochondria are just the, the powerhouse of each, of every cell that's all and you can either feed right. or poison them and so the mitochondria essentially are your energy source you know, yes, you need magnesium and vitamin C and stuff to drive them. But, yeah. you know, you, you, we think yeah. of human cells that it's all us, but actually mitochondria supposedly theoretically aren't us. Right. Like, the, you know, the, it's, you know, it's the, it's all down to the bacteria in the gut, isn't it? Is it? I don't know. Yeah, I've heard yeah. that many times. What, what floored me 38 years ago was one antibiotic, right? Took one antibiotic, that messed up my gut bacteria. And they say that like 85% of your immune system is the bacteria. You know, you've got, let's say, 100 trillion human cells. You've got 10 times that many bacteria. So with one antibiotic, you can destroy your immune system, which is sort of what happened to me. Right. So, and so that destroys your energy and it's just a just a cycle there's there's so many factors to avoiding poisoning you know every time yes. somebody the supermarket they're being poisoned generally yes 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 and and with you did you get back to how long did it take you to get back from your illness because i know you had this terrible hit i mean yeah um, well i you know i spent weeks in hospital not able to walk and stuff and it took a year and a half. You know, I had rheumatoid arthritis so so badly I couldn't get dressed or anything. It took about a year and a half to completely go. And the last 37 years, I've been 100% fine. But I also, it also hit other bits of me. I became type 1 diabetic. And that's still with me. Type 2 diabetes, you can beat in 30 days. Right. Type 2, 30 days, bam, you're no longer type 2. Type 1 has proved a little more tricky. Okay. But, yeah, one antibiotic. Yeah, I love it that you worked it out yourself. You didn't have anybody to help you, did you? Well, I had books. I mean, I had, I had, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants sort of thing. But for the weeks I was in hospital, I could read books. And, you know, it wasn't me being particularly clever. It was me being particularly desperate, I think. Right, right. Okay. And I came across Patrick Holford, who's still around today. And uh, he he filled in the gaps for me. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Remarkable story, Clive. <laughs> Fascinating. Well, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, doesn't it? Obviously. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Now, life is an incredible thing. I mean, I don't know about you, but super fantastic, weird, strange, incredible yeah. happen. Of course. Yeah, what a journey. I mean, I haven't particularly enjoyed the last 30 years, but in, in, in another way, I mean, I feel fortunate to have been involved in it because I've met some extraordinary people and, and it's just been an amazing journey. But I, uh, again, I haven't enjoyed it one little bit, but uh, yeah, I just want to fly airplanes. That's all I wanted to do. But I get really upset when I hear of cabin crew who are twenty-three in their prime and they get lured into going into the into the job, and within three years they can be absolutely wrecked. You know, there's a girl in Holland called Evelyn van der Heuvel who won her court case. She said, "Look, you know, you've made me ill. You know, and you know you have, and they'll they'll never admit it. You know, they'll they'll." pay them off in court and goodness knows what but this thing is a it's a huge problem in the airline industry and they kind of don't care really it's all about money 
and you know countless people there's 950 people prematurely dead in the uk air, air crew you know who have died in their 30s and 40s and 50s i mean there's huge numbers of people honestly it's, it's shocking really um yeah and um yeah we've made a difference i think over the years we've made lots of films and goodness knows what published papers but doesn't matter what you do they'll still say no that's not good enough sorry you've got to try harder you know with your evidence you know there's no there's no amount of evidence that will persuade the airline industry to change their ways because they know they're doing you know some terrible stuff really so it's, 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 isn't there a precedent if one court has ruled doesn't that create a precedent Could, couldn't all the damaged people if they knew take a class action and but it bring down the airline industry if you think of it i mean if these 200 cases in unite the union if they all win at once then the airlines have to stop flying because sorry it's been proved that you're, you're damaging people's health so so they can't win in court i mean it's a, just a nightmare situation and the family I talked about who flew over to America, you know, I consented the details for that. I'd love somebody to just go through them, actually, and just watch the films and read the papers and think, well, hang on. But the, again, these people can't win in court, because if they do, it will just expose the whole thing for what's going on, really. Because you, you've, you've ruined the lives of 40 people, you know, all at once. And uh, So, yeah, it's, it's a crazy situation, isn't it? I, there is an answer to it, which is that the risk is acknowledged. And when people fly, they sign a piece of paper that says, I understand the risks, you know, terms and conditions of flying. Yeah. Well, that, that's what's going to happen. And that when these um, air sensors are used, you know, by lawyers, they're going to provide the evidence because they don't believe our words. So, you know, I can tell you that in the future, these um, air sensors, they're, they're just digital data. They just send the data. So you'll see the exact amounts of carbon monoxide in the air and so on. And there's no arguing over that, honestly. You can't say, well, that's not right, you know, because that's a that's, you know measured um, amount. So that's what they're going to have to deal with in the years ahead. You know, it's, it's a grim um, future for the airlines, really. <laughs> this thing, it's, uh, I'm glad I'm not flying any longer. I've got to have to deal with it. It's, uh, they're in an impossible situation, really. And everybody knows that, you know, we're... we're professional airmen we don't want to wreck the airline industry either but they're going to wreck themselves unless they care careful you know um because you know technology is so good these days I, I i called a taxi the other day and suddenly on your phone you can watch this taxi coming to you shows you exactly where it is you know what time it's going to arrive the name of the driver you know all this stuff's readily available and you know it's it's, it's there waiting for the airlines too and you know that and just a couple of days ago, a cabin air safety, um, what do you call it, act came out in America. I can send it to you. You know, this is proposed legislation for America. And it's all about air quality sensors and reporting and education and all these good things. So come back in a few years' time. It will all be understood. But just at the moment, you can't even talk about it with the pandemic and goodness knows what. It's a, it's a taboo subject. <laughs> Do, do the governments of the world want people flying around anymore, apart from the scum? Well, they, I'm not sure they, they do, because it's a great generator of wealth, but there's just so many, you can't stop it and start it again. You know, it's like a continuing thing, really. So, yeah, it's a huge problem for them. So, so in the meantime, they just don't talk about it or sort of admit it. You know, they just talk about other things, you know, chemtrails or, or stuff, you know, <laughs> distract them from the real thing, really. It's the elephant in the room. Okay, so um, the although I finished the the interview earlier, 
can I cut that finishing bit out and put in the, the last bit we've just been discussing? Yeah, I'm a bit nervous at the moment because when this goes out on the internet, it has the potential to bring down the airline industry, if you know well, what I mean. It, you know, awareness. It, it, it won't if, if, if the risk is exposed or the facts are exposed, then you know, are you and I not going to go on holiday to Spain uh, because suddenly we're going to die? No, we're going to take a calculated risk. You know, I'm still going to fly, despite everything you've said. It's not going to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I'm an air crew, yeah, yeah, yeah. Quadruple my wages for me to think about it, but even even then, but I mean, absolutely. Coal miners go down the mines; they take a risk at work, you know. But it's a calculated risk. Um, So I don't think it would destroy the airlines. I think no, you're right, but it would it would certainly certainly take a hit, you know, because of is this coming out, and that's why you know. The media aren't allowed to talk about it, I think, because it would actually have huge repercussions, you know, any any sort of casual talk about it. But anyway. When yeah. it does get released, make sure you take shares in Boeing, probably. <laughs> Absolutely. But you want people to know, you know, it's like common sense stuff. You know, yeah, and, and they know they're onto a winner. And Airbus, you know, they're trying.